Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Shane Moore is a native of the Northwest U.S. Originally from Idaho, he has made wine in a variety of places around the globe. When he got the offer to make wines for Grand Moraine in Willamette Valley, it was a homecoming of sorts. And it's one we could all be thankful for. When you talk to him and taste his wines, it's obvious his soul belongs in the Northwest. I met with Moore to talk about the terroir of the Grand Moraine vineyards within the Yamhill Carlton AVA in Willamette Valley, how he expresses it in the cellar, and of course to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. We're recording this episode at City Mouse in the Ace Hotel in Chicago. Joining me today is Shane Moore, winemaker of Grand Moraine. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks. How'd you get into wine? How did I get into wine? Well, uh, my first foray was actually home winemaking. Um, I was about 17 years old, and my old man um, wanted to teach me how to make wine because he thought it was fun. So, did, you, did you grow up in wine country? Or? No, I grew up on a, in a cattle ranch and a wheat and barley farm in the middle of nowhere in central Idaho. So, central Idaho. So were you guys growing grapes too on the side? Or? Uh, my grandparents had some grapes down in like just on their little residential house uh, on the river, Clearwater River. Uh, but mostly we're making fruit wines. My, my dad was into making fruit wines. So... That was kind of where I got going. And then um, I met a winemaker when I was 19 years old who had a winery, and I, I talked him into hiring me somehow. In Idaho? In Idaho, yeah. I didn't know there was a lot of wine in Idaho. Um, not a lot. So there's 50 wineries in Idaho. Oh, fair now. well. And uh, I think there's, last time I checked, there's about 1,500 acres of vinifera planted. Uh, we were actually trucking fruit over from the... Um, I guess the Tri-Cities area in eastern Washington okay, and Walla Walla area in eastern Washington as well. If you're familiar with making wine in Washington, most fruit gets trucked other places, sure. either Woodenville or Walla Walla. Or, um, it's pretty desolate out there, so most of the fruit has to go somewhere to be made. I was working for a winery called Coeur d'Alene Cellars, and we were bringing in fruit from some really great vineyards, um, Seven Hills Vineyards and Rob Andrews Vineyard in the Horse Seven Hills, uh, Dick Boucher Vineyard out in Yakima, sure. who's a... Our two, the 2004 Syrah that we made from that vineyard was still like one of the top five wines I think I've ever made. Wow. It was, it was pretty incredible. How exciting. So you're this 19-year-old kid working at the winery in, uh, in Idaho. Kind of, I'd imagine you were sort of a cellar rat, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. Well, it was interesting. So I was studying chemistry, and that's how I convinced him to actually hire me. Uh, his name was Bob. And Bob needed someone to do his TAs, his PHs. He couldn't be bothered. So it's like, I can do that, and I'm pretty good at pushing a broom. So <laughs> that's how I got into it. And uh, just started part-time and then ended up being a full-time position later and uh, then went back to a school afterward and got my degree in winemaking. Where was it? Where'd you get that from? Um, Washington State University. Okay, Washington State. So you sort of... Go Cougars. <laughs> so you're sort of from the Northwest there. Yeah. You sort of stayed near home. Yeah, totally. Time. They've got a great program. Um, nowadays, I think it's, uh, I want to say it has the second most professors of any enology viticulture program in the United States oh, wow. after, after Davis. After Davis, obviously, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. And how'd you end up at Grand Marine? Tell me about that. It's a long story, you know, uh, but after getting my degree from Washington State University, I was like wanted to kind of do some exploring. I've always been kind of adventurous. 
And um, I ended up going up to the Okanagan Valley in Canada and got a winemaking job up there at a winery called Burley Now. And that was great. It was, it was a fun time um, making great wines up there. If you're not familiar with the Okanagan Valley, those wines are really good. And uh, from there, I spent, spent about a year and a half. I was only 24 and decided, you know, needed to do some more traveling. So I started working harvest back and forth, um, kind of as a lot of young people in wine do. I worked uh, three harvests down in Western Australia, Margaret River. Mm -hmm. I worked a harvest down in Sonoma County. Um, and then I worked a harvest over the Golan Heights in, in Oh, really? Israel. In Israel. Yeah, and that was really fun, too. And so my second harvest in Western Australia, I met my wife. Uh, her name's Claire. And she was doing the same thing, traveling back and forth. And we kept doing it for a couple of years, and we were doing it together. And then we, I got to be 30 years old, and... When you're 30, it's actually a lot more difficult to get visas in other countries. Oh, <laughs> so, hey, you're not a student anymore, You're not right? a student anymore. And so it was kind of like getting hard to get visas, so we decided we needed to grow up and get real jobs. So is your wife a winemaker too? Uh, she was. She was in production. Now she does wine business. Okay. So, um, but she understands harvest, which is really great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'd imagine. So how'd you end up at Grand Marine? Um, so I got a job at La Crema Winery making Chardonnay for them mm -hmm. uh, down in Sonoma County. And uh, about a year later, Jackson Family Wines, whose own owners of Grand Moraine, bought the Grand Moraine Vineyard in, in um, the Willamette Valley in the Yamhill, count, um, Yamhill ABA. And that's a new ABA too. Yeah, it's 2006. So, yeah, so uh, it's, it's on the northern end of the Willamette Valley. And, um, if you're, you know, if you want to kind of envision it, it's kind of like a crab's claw around the northern end of the Willamette Valley. And it's kind of delineated um, mostly by soil type. It's a sedimentary soil type ABA. Um, so they bought the Grammarine Vineyard. It had, been per it had been planted in 2003. And um, I raised my hand and said I'd love to be the winemaker for I'll that. go. And wanted to get back to the Northwest really bad. I'm a Northwest person, you know, so. So that's um, quite a change, making the change from making, say, La Crema, which is huge production, make it the same year after year, high volume to what you're doing at Grand Marais. What, what, what kind of case, how many cases of wine are you making a year at Grand Marais? We're doing about 10,000 a year now. 10,000 so, yeah, a year. Yeah, we're very, very small. We've got three employees. I drag hoses still all the time. I, I, it's more my style. Um, you know, whenever you're at a big winery, you're mostly writing work orders and you're, you're tasting wine all the time, which is great, but it's, it's more logistics. It's a logistics problem than yeah. a winemaking issue. Yeah. When you're in, you know, you had a winery, 10,000 cases, you're really intimate with every barrel. I mean, we have about 500 barrels and I know where every single one of them is, <laughs> you know, there, you, you really, get close with the wine and that's that's for me that's where my passion lies was that sort of the dream to begin with when you got into wine to have this kind of you know fairly decent sized production but not gigantic production winery where you really get to have your hands in it yeah definitely i mean i fell in love with winemaking because i love cellar work that was like how i really really got into it and you know, I, I of course loved the flavors, and I I've always been into food, so it kind of was a natural fit. But what I really wanted to do was always work at a winery, kind of this size. I, I would say, once you hit that like 200 tons, which is about that's right at 10,000 cases, um, you kind of hit this area that uh, 
you have all the toys that you need to really make the world's you know most premium wines, but you're still small enough to where you can really focus on on the wine themselves, on the wines themselves, and really dial it in really tightly. And being where you're at, you're making Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Anything else? Uh, that's about it. Uh, we do sparkling wine as well, but out of, uh, out of Chardonnay, out of Chardonnay and, Pinot. and Pinot Noir. We uh, we did bring in two whole tons of Pinot Meunier last year. So oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. And, and you, so you brought that in. Are you are primarily though? You're dealing with estate fruit, right? Uh, yeah. And actually, that was a uh, part of the Willakinsey Estate, which is part of our family. So yeah, everything else is all estate off of Grammarane Vineyard, and we have a small vineyard that surrounds our winery. Um, and then, yeah, I brought in two tons from outside of our two vineyards. and Just for the sparkling wine? Yeah, just for the sparkling wine. It was it was kind of more fun to say that I work with all three Chardonnay, Pinot, and Pinot Meunier. Because you're not so. busy enough, you decided to sort of <laughs> sparkling project, huh? Yeah, well, the sparkling project's fun. That was definitely my baby. Um, we started in 2014. Yeah, it's 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 great, and we're having great response to the wines, and and it's been a really great learning project for me. The only sparkling wine I'd made before that was actually in Yard and Golden Heights at the Yard Inn Winery. It sounds like you're really French influenced in your wine. Did you spend time in France, or um, I've never lived in France, never worked there. I I love France. I'm definitely. I mean, I'm in love with Burgundy, and I think those were the first Who wines. Who is it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I think I've, one of the first wines that really changed my life, life was a white Burgundy, you know, is, and those are the wines that I think ever since I started producing wine, that's what I wanted to make was a white Burgundy in particular or something like it. And, um, and then, you know, Pinot, I, I have a hard time drinking any other red than Pinot Noir anymore. It's so versatile it's so beautiful it's uh you know it has a conversation with you instead of you know kind of i i find some bigger reds more of a they more just talk at you instead of yeah for sure yeah yeah I, I, I see what you're saying exactly what was that what was that white burgundy oh man you know i it was an etienne soze uh, and i might have butchered the name and i i believe it was just maybe one of the village level just wines just the village level wine huh yeah, it just spoke you know, to you yeah it's burgundy a, is a way of doing that doesn't it it takes you there and then i i actually got a go for the first time uh four years ago and you know and it's like you until you go you never realize that pomard and volnay are literally just kilometers apart you know it's it's they're so close and the wines are so different and and it's it's just amazing it's amazing the history there and and the wine the wine history in general tell me tell me how that influences the wines you're making today um definitely definitely does uh i really want to make wines that are that are a little bit more sleek a little bit more feminine definitely food wines i don't want to make you know overblown too powerful of wines. I want wines kind of going back to that idea of, of having a conversation with your wine and and having it have a sense of place as well. And I, you know, I think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are two of the most transparent grapes, and they really allow you to do that. So we take it. I'm really in, into that idea of really taking it down to the place as well. What is the terroir of yeah. the Hamilton? So you know, being the northern part of the Willamette Valley, it's it's. Uh, it's interesting. It's a cool climate, but Yamhill is a little bit warmer than some some areas of the Willamette Valley. Uh, we're shadowed, shadowed by the coast range a little bit more, so we're a little bit drier, and we get a little less wind up there. 
Um, the second part of it is the terroir of the soil, and it's all ancient marine sedimentary soil, so it's an old seafloor uplift, mm -hmm. and that's a really unique aspect of what we're doing here. And, and you know, with, with Pinot and Chardonnay, I think they are so transparent that you really do, it does come through in the glass. So these sedimentary soils, I think, give this sort of spice box component. They give maybe a little bit more of an angular tannin component um, in both the Pinot and the Chardonnay, because Chardonnay has tannin too, and that's a big part of, of the wine. I think what my, my sort of philosophy is, is take that spice box and take those kind of angular tannins and, and make something that's a little bit more of a, of a nuanced wine from that. Um, dial back the tannins, and, but dial up the fruit and, and keep the acid um, really driving and, and what I kind of think of as linear. And that's, you know, part of a great food wine, I think, as well. What's your approach to cellar work? What, when, when you're, you know, obviously you want to maintain the sense of place and why you don't want oh, to wipe yeah. that out when you easily could in the cellar. You, but what, talk, talk to me a little bit about your approach in the cellar. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm a rock licker, so, you know, I, I, I definitely hear what, you know, natural wine is all about, and I'm, I'm kind of... I'm, I have a foot in both camps. Uh, you know, I studied chemistry, so I really, I love the chemistry of wine and I love, the, you know, the chemistry of tannins and, and phenolics and all that. And I also really love, you know, the viticulture side. We've got great viticulture teams and, you know, they're bringing us phenomenal wines. And I guess with both what I'm doing and what they're doing is we do try to do minimal intervention. We're live certified, so we're not using harsh chemicals, uh, you know, in the vineyards or in the winery. I'm all about really gentle handling, handling once we, we get the fruit in and just trying to let the grapes speak. Not, not a lot of additives. So, you know, whenever you're not doing a lot of additives, that means you're, you're picking on the early side. Really the only thing that any of these wines have seen is sulfur. And, just a little um, bit to hold, to stabilize. Yep, yep. Did little, you inoculate or is it all natural fermentation? Uh, the only wine on the table that's inoculated is the the rosé and i i think the rosé inoculating for rosé is is part of it it's 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 what helps really pop the fruit you know you, you, a lot said about this natural fermentation and inoculation what do you find the differences between between the two what what is it yeah. in, in the end game what does it mean to the glass that's that's a really that's a hard question because you know you can one of the interesting things that I've seen done in the past in the cellar is yeast trials. Winemakers love trialing. And, um, you know, you'll trial where you buy an inoculated yeast and you put it in the wine. And then you'll do a native. And maybe you'll do three or four different kinds of inoculated yeast. And in one month's time, they're very different. And in three months' time, they're still very different. But it's, they start converging. Really? And they really do. And so if you put this in the bottle and you you really take it out I think you know what you kind of see the winemaker's hand early but in a particularly in a Pinot Noir I think the the vineyard and the terroir really show through after five six years so it's so the wine really wants to go back to be it what home is I think as opposed it does to, yeah it's interesting I've um, never heard that and we've seen I've seen that time and time again where you'll bottle these yeast trials and you think oh man 
you know, this is, this is where it's at, or this is where it's at, you know, this yeast is the best, and you'll taste them all blind four years down the road, and they're, you know, the, the wines have evolved to a point where they're very similar. They're all very similar, and um, so ultimately, I don't know really what it does. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. But, you know, in, in young wines, I think they really, uh, you know, if you want really a fruit-focused wine, inoculation is probably the way to go. If you want something with a little bit more complexity and a little bit more sort of uh, nuance, uh, particularly if you're drinking a young wine, I think that in a native ferment's the way to go. And now, obviously, you haven't had that time to see where your wines go, given the label's only how many how many years old? Yeah, so 13 was our first real vintage. Yeah, so, so. you're only a couple vintages in now. and Yeah, uh, so we haven't seen the ageability of my particular wines yet from this vineyard. Uh, the vineyard was planted in 2003, though, so there have been single vineyard uh, sure. wines produced from going back. I've had some... I think 2007 was the first single vineyard I've had from the Grand Moraine Vineyard, and that was a Beauferrer, and it was it was lovely, and that was a difficult vintage in the Willamette Valley was too. It? So I think actually the more difficult vintages often sell her the best in the Willamette Valley. Cool. Yeah, I I, I kind of like difficult vintage wines. Uh, 2011 in California is one of my favorite, actually. Those, I mean, those are some of the best Pinots to ever come out of California. Yeah. There's some opinion. good stuff there for sure. Yeah. Should we take some wine? Yeah, let's do Great. it. So, what do we got first? So, John, the uh, the first wine we've got is our 2017 Rose of Pinot Noir. Really delicate color, huh? Very delicate color. I, um, I took a lot of inspiration from Provence and Bandal for this wine. Um, my wife went to high school in Provence, so we spent some time there, and I love the wines there so much. And I, I think of with Rosé, we have kind of three different styles. We have kind of the classic New World style that a lot of the time is very ripe and mostly from a Saunier. And I think that Saunier's make, personally, I think they're inferior. Now, when you Rose. say Saunier, some people might not know what that is. Would you yeah. describe that for me? So a Saunier is where you're picking grapes for making a still wine, like a, like a Pinot Noir uh, red wine. And then to essentially concentrate the flavor of your red wine, you take some juice out of it, and that changes your skin to juice ratio. But what are you going to do with this juice? You know, you don't want to put it down the drain. Sure. Um, so you ferment it, and it makes this kind of very bold style rosé that maybe is so kind said of, just very little contact with the skin. Just you just pull it out and yeah, and so you get your color from it, but you also are picking at a ripeness level that would be for your red wine. Oh, right. So you're yeah, phenolically sure. That's a big ripe. difference, right. And so, you know, for example, you're picking your red wines at 22 to 24, 25 bricks. And if you're doing that, you're making a rosé that's over 14% alcohol a lot of right, the time. Right, yeah, right. And your pHs are probably in the 3.5s to 3.7s. So this is big, round, sweet almost. Yeah, yeah. Fruity, um, if not, even if you vinify all the way dry, to dry, you're still going to be very fruity. Exactly. So my philosophy with rosé is, you know, to pick the grapes, grow the grapes for rosé, and pick the grapes for rosé. So we're picking at about 20 and a half to 21 bricks. All right. And the pH where I would pick a red wine at a pH of 3, 3, 3, 4. Uh, the pH of this we're picking at 3.15 to 3.2. It goes in the glass about 3.25. Great. Uh, so direct to press. So hand harvested um, clusters, direct to pressed. 
and pressed like a champagne, actually, very light press cycle, kind of short, or I guess, yeah, short in duration for the most part, really. Um, we just want the, the, the sort of the, the stuff that comes off first. That's, the, that's you know, the first run. Um, right. We don't really do press fractions. They get a sure. little bit funky. Well, but, really pretty, the aroma, very, very delicate flowers, light fruit, definitely in that Provencal style. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, I, and then I was going to, you know, say it's like, you know, the other rosés of Pinots that you see around the world are either Sancerre, Sans um, which I think can be a little bit too driving, or Marcinet, which can be maybe a little bit too round. So I wanted to kind of find that sweet spot of, of kind of an old world style, but mm -hmm. um, have some roundness and some finesse. Roundness, I get, I get that kind of leasiness to it. Do you, yeah. do you work the lees at all with it? Um, or? <laughs> actually, I think that's probably we use uh, we use eggs for fermentation, oh, okay. and you know they're constantly stirring the lees. I think that kind so of gives naturally, it a little bit yeah, of that. Yeah, there's a little bit of that creaminess to it, but really nice light berries. I mean, you're not going to fool anyone into thinking that this is not New World fruit. I mean, this is clearly. From 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 the states and I would say clearly from Oregon. I mean, it's yeah. I think I think if you're a psalm and you're using deductive reasoning, you probably nail it pretty quickly. I would yeah. think um, it's definitely not. Yeah, it's definitely a Pinot Noir rosé, and and it definitely has that flashy fruit that that I love about rosé. But it still has a great um, backbone of acidity. And how much of this are you making? Uh, we made a thousand cases. Okay, so very little. Yeah. Is, is it available outside the winery, or yeah. do you have to? Yeah, uh, I know we're going to be pouring it tomorrow. Actually, in Chicago here, I think Chicago got about forty cases. All so. right, so you can find it around. It's um, mostly, I'm, I'm assuming, mostly in restaurants, but you probably find it in shops somewhere if you look around hard enough. Yeah, yeah, but definitely a restaurant focus. Uh, but yeah, you can find it in fine wine as well. That's delicious and. Really nice, high, bright acidity. Again, uh, going back to that talk about you want to make food wine, this is food wine for sure. Yeah. I mean, it tastes delicious just sitting here tasting it. But I think with food, it'll elevate this and transform it into something very pretty. Oh. A little bit of fine tannin on there too, huh? Yeah, a little, little tiny bit of grip. You know, I think great rosé should have just a tiny bit of grip that helps, you know, your salivary glands go into work. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then yeah, with food. I mean, I love pairing this with prosciutto sandwiches. Is probably my favorite. Uh, but I mean, actually, my ultimate favorite is Thanksgiving. I and mean, there's nothing better than rosé with Thanksgiving, in my opinion. That's I, I joke with some other wine writers about that whole awful every year. You see what what wine to pair with Thanksgiving dinner? Well, any well-made wine is going to go well with Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Just make sure something everyone enjoys. But I could see this working with Thanksgiving dinner really nicely. Oh, yeah. Any time in wood? You know, I did about 20% in barrel ferment. Uh, yeah. Mostly I use either, they're called... It's called flex tanks. They're a breathable poly tank, believe it or not. It's meant to mimic kind of concrete somewhat. Right. So what they do is they they help add, since, since they breathe, the, the wine's able to consume oxygen during fermentation. And that's what I, how I get that body with so much acid. So, you know, like a barrel fermentation, that's kind of why wines that are fermented in barrel are generally rounder. It's because of the oxygen during fermentation that it, that it's allowing to have. But the thing about barrels is you do pick up tannins from right, barrels. Yeah. 
so it can make a rosé feel rough. kind of rough and clunky. And so these, this, it's newer technology. It's they're made in Portland, which is really cool. Oh, cool. Okay. Specifically for the wine industry, and they make these eggs. And yeah, it's it's really fun. So it's the big plastic egg. It's yeah, a big concrete egg. Giant plastic eggs. Yeah, and That's they really work cool. beautifully. Um, I'm I could be a salesperson for that. <laughs> I love what they do for my rosé. So. Great. What's next? Next is our 2015 Yamhill Carlton Pinot. So all estate, two different vineyards, both from the Yamhill Carlton AVA, the Grand Moraine Vineyard, which is out on the west side of the AVA, and our vineyard surrounding our winery, our winery vineyard, that's uh, pretty much smack dab in the middle of the AVA. Sedimentary soils again, so I think you know that spice really comes through and the fruit. Um, really pretty color. Yeah, yeah, just really that pretty kind color. Of barely garnet, I guess. Yeah, not yet. It's it's it's. It's not ruby, but it's not quite brown to garnet. The brown to, to me, garnet gets a little bit of brown yeah. to it. Where this doesn't have that. This still has a lot of purple to it. But I can but I can see with age, it's going that color and the aroma. Wow, it's making my mouth water just smelling it. Fifteens are so beautiful. They're one of my favorite vintages. Again, in a this long is time. you're not going to fool anyone to make them think this is burgundy. Nice fruit on the nose. There's a seriousness to this wine. It's not. Not muscular seriousness, but there's the, there's a nice pretty fruit, but there's a backbone. You know, there's 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 good acidity. The woods woods there, but not predominant. It's not fighting with it, but the mm-hmm. wood is giving it that backbone, that structure. It's really got great weight. Mm. Lovely fruit. So you said fifteen was good. What was what was so great about it? It was you know it was a pretty average year, and that's that's a great vintage in in Oregon. Um, wait, wait, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, well, it's a great growing region because the average year you're going to have really great wines, and so you know it wasn't too hot. It's kind of like Goldilocks phenomenon. It's not uh-huh. too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right sort of thing. Uh-huh. And fifteen was like that. The the thing that I think that really took fifteen to the next level was it was a very cool September. So the wines, you know, were just hitting phenological ripeness, but they weren't really pushing super hard with photosynthesis. So you didn't get like some super hot spike that really drove it crazy. Exactly. And, and no, you're rushing around. just kind of, just kind of, I guess, moseyed along, and it was just nice. beautiful, and and no, no big fall rains to speak of. So we were able to get these really restrained, beautifully ripe wines um, that are very expressive. And yeah, it's a great vintage. What I love you, the acid on this vintage. If you, if someone were to ask you about the terroir for the Pinot Noir from from your vineyard particularly, mm-hmm. how would you describe it? I, I'd describe it. You know, I think this wine's a little bit more on that feminine side, and that's definitely the terroir of this vineyard. Um, because a lot of the time when people are describing Yamhill Carlton, they think of more masculine styled wines and maybe a little bit more burly tannins and and uh, and maybe a little bit higher pH and and so this vineyard's all far on the west side of the ABA, which is right up closer to the coast. Okay. And actually, before it was planted, people even thought that it was too far west. It wouldn't even ripen. Um, so so I, you're pushing a limit there. It yeah, did definitely cool. push the limit. And, and, it's, you know, and it ripens beautifully every year. So ripeness isn't an issue there. But I think it is a little bit cooler than the other parts of the ABA. Mm-hmm. And we're still getting kind of, I think we got kind of the best of both worlds of the AV because we still get that spiciness that you think of in Yamhill Carlton. But uh, the refinement of the tannin, I think, is really Super lovely. Super fine. Super and, fine. You know, and it, I always think about this as like, 
you know, if you're a burgundy lover, it's more it's more like Volnay than it is like Cote Nuit or Chevrolet mm-hmm. Chambertin. You know, it's a little bit sleeker. It, uh, the tannins are you know they're there and they're present, but they're really sleek. And I always talk about how it travels across your palate. It's a, it's a linear wine. It doesn't like explode across your mid palate. It just kind of travels like a straight line across the mid palate and then the finish, and then it brings your um, saliva forward. And I, I think that's kind of I think that's part, mostly the terroir. I mean, I, I wouldn't claim that as winemaking. Oh, sure, sure. This and some roast chicken would be a, a very beautiful that's, thing, wouldn't it? That is it? a great pairing, actually. <laughs> yeah, roast chicken is great with this wine, for sure. And how much of this did you make? Uh, we made the 2015 vintage, I think, was about 4,500 cases. So this Fair is well. our largest uh, produ- production wine. And do you and, know the retail price on this one? Uh, this is about forty-five. In, oh, that's in really markets. a fair price for this quality of yeah. wine. Thank I mean, you. That's that's nice to hear that because it wouldn't have surprised me to hear sixty, sixty-five, and that's you know, forty, forty-five. I think is that kind of spot where people who want to splurge a little bit on a nice bottle of wine will go. Yeah. But they don't have to think hard about it. When you get to sixty, now we're thinking about that price point. I think a lot of for a lot of folks. Oh, definitely. And at forty-five, that's and not even a thinker. It puts it at you know seventy-five on a restaurant list too, which I mean, I, for me uh, anyway. Well, for, hopefully. You know. Yeah, yeah. If, <laughs> the, if you're not the, getting the three, t- the three times retail markup is alive <laughs> and well and living in Chicago. I'll just say that much about uh, wine pricing oh, in restaurants. Man. Yeah. <laughs> well, the most part, I guess, in in my part of the world, uh, I'm see I see it on the list anywhere from sixty-five to eighty-five, and oh, which is super fair. That's I think that's. Fair. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, you wouldn't bat an eye for that. Yeah. This, this wine in a restaurant at that price. So yeah. what's last? Our last is Chardonnay. So I do. Let me ask you this before we get into it. Why did you tra- Why did you travel down this route? Most people would have gone the Chardonnay prior to the Pinot. Why'd you do it this well, way? Well, if you're in Burgundy, you know that's they taste the same way, and I think uh, I think my wines are reminiscent of that um, because the Chardonnay has so much acid and it has so much going on that you know if you're gonna pair this with a meal, the Chardonnay would go with the cheese course as well. Um, so I think I think it is a great way to taste wines that that are made like this. Cool and. And that's the, the, my preference, anyhow, as well. Great, great complexity, and for I don't know how you feel about this term, but I feel comfortable using it. There's good minerality on the nose. I know that's a polarizing term when you get into <laughs> minerality and what people flip out about it. But you know, to me, when it smells like a wet rock or yeah, the sidewalk rock. on a hot mm-hmm. summer day, that's minerality, and yep. you get a good amount of that in this. But there's a Nice complex uh, citrus and green apple, and some some like like brie or creme fraiche. Yeah. And do you do the same thing with the uh, lees on this wine with the egg white that you do with the rosé? So this is fermented all in barrels. So okay. um, what we're doing with this is we are lee stirring during primary fermentation. Primary fermentation lasts about six, seven months with this Oh, wow. Wine. Okay. Because um, it's a native fermentation and very low pH. So that's a very difficult environment for, for native flora. Mm-hmm. So lots of lee stirring, actually. Um, but it works well with this wine because, you know, the, the acid is so present that it, it helps to really fill out the mouth and, and not be overwhelming either. Right. What I would say about this wine is this is about balance. Yeah. This wine is beautifully balanced. Everything about it, there's 
the fruit is there, the acidity is there, the roundness is there, the oak is there. They're all right in balance. Um, a lot of people are shy about Chardonnay because they think, oh, it's going to be too, too creamy and too oaky and too buttery, and I'm not going to like it. Well, I'll tell you what. This wine has all those elements, but they're all in check. Yeah. And, man, that's absolutely delicious wine. I love that. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I fell in love. You know, whenever I first came to the Willamette Valley to make Pinot, I came to make Pinot. That's what I came for. And we had, thir- we actually have 30 acres of Chardonnay planted at the Grand Marine Vineyard. So it makes this one of the larger Chardonnay plantings in, in um, Oregon. And I started talking to the other winemakers that worked with the vineyard for seven, eight years. Everyone was talking about the Chardonnay. And I was like, I have no idea that I was going to possibly walk into making some great Chardonnay. And, and 13 was my first vintage. And I was just blown away at, at the terroir. This is terroir. This is a terroir-driven wine. Describe that terroir to me. Uh, I, that's that little bit of tannin, that chalk on the finish. That's that that sort of crushed or wet stone you smell as well. I, I, that's definitely that's definitely part of the terroir. The other part of the terroir is, you know, this is a 13.0% alcohol. Nice. And we're picking it at 20-ish bricks, but it's fully phenolically ripe. You know, I had nothing to do with that. I mean, I... Right. <laughs> it's, it's ripe at, at that level, you know, and that's, that's something like I, I kind of want to remind wine writers and people who drink wine is, you know, if, if you're drinking a 14% alcohol wine, yeah, that might be a little bit high, you might think, but that's what your place gave you. You're, I mean, you're as long as it's it in on, balance, you exactly. know, some, sometimes you get these wines and they're just not in balance. And, yeah. And, and even at like, you know, 14%, that wine can be hot. or oh. And I've had wines that are over 15% that are in balance and you would never know it. And so, I, think, I think that's maybe... The, the phenomena of growing maybe the wrong grape at the wrong place. You oh, know? yeah, uh, sure. If you're, if you're making out-of-balance wines, you're probably just not growing the right grape. You can obviously grow grapes there, but maybe, maybe you should look for something else. Unfortunately, but, we don't have those centuries and centuries that they had in France and Spain and Italy it to figure that part out. We're still, you know, you're dealing with a, what, a 15-year-old vineyard you got there. Yeah, so, exactly. But I think, I think uh, whoever planted it did well because... These wines all show really beautifully. Thank you. Um, clearly, all wine that you should have with food. I could see a cheese course with this oh, Chardonnay would be it's dynamite. Special. Some grilled fish or something, too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really beautiful. Well, Shane Moore, thanks so much for your time. Uh, your wines are really delicious. Really excited to uh, get a chance to taste them, and I encourage people to go out and find Grand Marais. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 